All right, uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms here. We love and appreciate you and, and all that you do. Greetings to all of our campuses, uh, those of you who are meeting out west, those of you meeting downtown at Zoe's, those of you in our traditions venue, we're glad that all of you are here. We are in the midst of a teaching series in which we're focusing on the issue of faith. From a biblical perspective, faith is what activates the power of God in our lives. So how can we grow in our faith? I mean, that's the question that we're looking at in this teaching series. We're focusing on a fascinating passage found in the book of Luke, chapter 24. In this chapter, we are introduced to two followers of Jesus who are struggling in their faith. They've had a pretty rough week. Just a few days earlier, their leader, Jesus, whom they thought was the Messiah, died right before their eyes. So all their hopes vanished in that moment. Then on Sunday morning, they hear the news that Jesus' tomb is empty. They don't know what to do with this. They're confused. They are distressed. Their faith is sort of in limbo. As they're walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, they are joined by Jesus, but they don't know that it's him. They're kept from recognizing him. Now, what, what transpires in this passage is, is complete transformation. I mean, that's what happens. By the end of this passage... These two guys who had been struggling in their faith are now on fire. I mean, their faith is off the charts. So what was it that reignited their faith? Well, in this teaching series, we've talked about a couple of, couple of those things that, it, that ignited their faith. One was the power of the word, the power of the Bible, and then also the power of testimony. We've talked about that in the past few weeks. But there is something else in this passage that helps stir their faith. And it's something that we see throughout the entire Bible, God stirring people's faith in this way. And yet it's also something that can be a bit controversial. What I'm talking about are, are miracles, Miracles. The Webster's Dictionary defines a miracle in this way. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And that's, that's a great definition. A miracle is an extraordinary event that occurs giving evidence of God's existence and in his power. And there, there is no question that miracles can be something that stir our faith in Jesus. Now, the operative word there is the word can. Miracles can stir our faith in Jesus, depending upon our response to them. And so I want us to look at some of the miracles of Jesus and then talk about our response to them. And by the end of this message, I'm hoping and praying that all of us experience an increase in our faith including those who are skeptical of biblical miracles as well as those who are already believing. We all can grow in our faith. We all can. So let's take a few minutes and look first at some of the miracles of Jesus. Now, the, the miracles of Jesus <clears throat> fit into two basic categories. One general category involves miracles that, are, that involve the control over nature. Miracles in the physical realm. And so let's start with a passage that we've been looking at, Luke 24, where we see these two guys who are in the midst of a faith struggle. They've been walking with Jesus, literally walking with him, but they have been kept from recognizing him. So they invite him to stay the night, to stay with them that night. So they're having dinner, verse 30. <clears throat> when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. 
Now this is miraculous. People don't just disappear, except in the movies or uh, an illusion in a magic show or whatever, neither of which is real. But this is real. Jesus disappearing, it shows Jesus' control over the physical realm. We are limited by time and space, but he is not. Okay, so later, these two disciples excitedly run back to Jerusalem, and they tell the others there what happened to them, and, and there we read, after that we read that Jesus actually appeared to them. He reappears to them after he had just died a few days earlier. He spoke to them. Again, this reveals Jesus' lordship over the physical realm, including death itself. Now, there, there are many other examples of Jesus demonstrating power over nature. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, we read about how Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat. I visited this area um, a couple of years ago, actually got some video footage of it, but it's an incredibly beautiful setting. We actually got on a boat and we were able to just enjoy being out on the water. It was a beautiful day. It was incredibly peaceful. We could look out and see the coast where Jesus had taught um, the Sermon on the Mount. You could see other boats in the water. Now, what you wouldn't be able to tell from the footage that you're watching is that just two hours before this, when we were driving into town near the Sea of Galilee, a storm came up just out of nowhere, and it pounded us. Wind and rainstorm hit. We had to stay on the bus for a while just to wait for this thing to actually finish. And I remember thinking at the time, we're not even going to be able to see the Sea of Galilee because this storm, it's, just, it's, it's, it's going to continue all day. It was that kind of storm. But sure enough, within several minutes, it was completely gone. Sun was out. I mean, the Sea of Galilee is known for that kind of thing. Storms coming up quickly, arriving out of nowhere. Well, that's exactly what happened in Luke chapter 8. As Jesus and the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee on a boat, a squall came up, and it was a significant storm. Now, Jesus was, had fallen asleep in the boat, so the disciples woke him up saying, Master, we're going to drown, and look at what happens next. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. He speaks, and the winds and the water grow calm. They obey him. That's miraculous. He, he exerts control over nature, over the physical realm. In another passage that's in all the Gospels, we read about how Jesus took loaves of, just, just a few loaves of bread and fed a group of 5,000 plus people. One time when Peter was fishing, wasn't catching anything, Jesus directed Peter to put out his net into another spot, and suddenly the nets were full, hundreds of fish. Another time Jesus spoke to a fig tree, and it withered at that moment. There are numerous examples of Jesus demonstrating power over the physical realm. None of us have that kind of power. But Jesus regularly demonstrated it. Sometimes these instances that I just recited or others can become so familiar to some of us 
They can become so familiar to us that we lose sight of the awesome power of these miracles that Jesus performed. Now, I also realize that some of us here may hear these accounts and think to ourselves, well, that could all be made, that could have been made up by the disciples or whatever. When they wrote this stuff down, that could have been made up. How do we know this stuff really happened? That's a great question. You know, it's this way with any written form of ancient history that we have, right? The Battle of Gettysburg or the French Revolution. We weren't there to observe these things. So we base our conclusions on eyewitness accounts. As we saw last week, Luke tells us at the start of this book, the book of Luke, he tells us at the start that he compiled his book from all these eyewitness testimonies of several people. He had interviewed people who had actually seen these things and witnessed these things. And then he put together his book from eyewitness accounts. When you read the accounts of Jesus' life, in, in, like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, when you read those accounts, you immediately recognize that these are not written like a myth would be written, or like a legend, or a fairy tale. They're not written that way. They include details that normally come from eyewitnesses. So if you compare the, uh, the, uh, the account of Matthew or whatever, compare that to Greek mythology, I mean, there is no comparison. There is no comparison in terms of the, the type of literature. The, the, the writers of these gospel accounts of Jesus were, were communicating actual events with, with multiple eyewitnesses. Okay, so that's one general category of miracles. It's the physical realm, nature and all of that. Now, the other general category of miracles that Jesus performed was, would be in the area of, of healing. Um, where people received immediate benefit from the miracle itself. And there are dozens and dozens of examples in the New Testament where Jesus healed people from demonic influence, of physical disease and infirmity, being deaf and blind and disabled, even dead. Um, Jesus often demonstrated power over sickness and disease. So let's focus on one healing in particular in the book of Luke. In chapter 7, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And as he approached the town gate, I'm reading in Luke 7, beginning in verse 12, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Again, notice the detail here. It's an only child, the mother's a widow. There are details here in this narrative. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. I mean, this is amazing. Can you imagine being at a funeral where in the middle of it, someone comes up and speaks to the body in the coffin and the person actually comes alive? I mean, that would be awesome. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He spoke to a dead body and it came alive. And, and notice the heart behind this. This isn't Jesus doing some magic show. Hey, you know, let me pull a rabbit out of my robe or something, right? This is not Jesus doing a magic show. Jesus' miracles of healing are always rooted in his compassion for these people. Luke tells us that Jesus' heart went out to this woman who had lost her only son. 
His compassion moved him to act. So many of Jesus' miracles are revealing, or excuse me, are a reversing of what the enemy and what sin have done to the world. And Jesus' miracles are reversing that, which is what makes Jesus such an awesome Savior. Okay, so so we have these eyewitness accounts given to us in the Bible, accounts that have stood the test of time, accounts that have been affirmed and validated through earnest scrutiny. Here they are presenting to us a Jesus who performed miracles, amazing miracles in the course of his three-year ministry on earth, miracles involving nature, miracles involving healing. So what do we do with this? How do we respond Remember I talked before about, you know, these can impact us depending upon our response. So how do we respond to these miracles? Let me mention four different responses that we can have to the miracles of Jesus. And these responses will have a significant impact upon our experience of God. First response is what I would describe as skepticism. Skepticism. The the skeptic is someone who has an inherent posture of disbelief. They have an inherent posture of disbelief. Let let me make sure I'm, I'm very clear about something here. Skepticism, the way I'm defining it, is not the same thing as doubts. Skepticism is not gonna, it's not the same thing as having doubts. We're we're gonna actually talk about doubts the next two weeks, how we deal with our doubts, because I mean doubts, it's it's normal for us as, as Christ followers to have doubts at times about our faith. That's normal. Skepticism is doubt on steroids. Okay, it, it, it is, a, it is, a, it is a, a, a hardened mindset that always disbelieves anything miraculous. That's skepticism. Now, in our culture, the roots of this kind of skepticism can be found in the Enlightenment, which, which began in the late 17th century. What happened during the Enlightenment was that reason and science were elevated to a place of intellectual prominence, and things like faith and miracles were suddenly out of bounds. Um, and so for many, th- there, there was now this chasm between the Bible and science, Today, we see the results of the Enlightenment. Today, we have people like Richard Dawkins and and others who argue that you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and hold to religious beliefs, that you can't do both of those at the same time. These things, from their perspective, these things are mutually exclusive. in, In other words, from their perspective, they would say that the laws that govern this natural world are all that there is. The laws that govern the natural world are all that there is. Now, do do you see the problem with this perspective? It's circular reasoning. Well, let me explain. It uses the laws of nature to completely rule out anything beyond the laws of nature, which, which is shaky ground, because our understanding of the laws of nature are limited. A hundred years ago, The thought of a thousand-ton jet traveling through the air was preposterous. It it violated the laws of nature at that time, at least our understanding of the laws of nature at that time. Today, we have thousand-ton jets that are flying everywhere, defying gravity every time they lift off. I mean, do we really want to base our faith 
on our own understanding of the laws of nature. Skepticism, by default, it eliminates any possibility outside the laws of nature. And in this, in this framework, miracles cannot happen. They can't happen, period. The argument is over. It can't happen. But what if there is a creator? What if there is a God who created matter and time and space and reason and, and all scientific laws? Wouldn't that creator have the right and the ability to do whatever he wanted, including things that are outside the laws of nature? Couldn't he disappear, for instance, or walk on water? or cause the wind to stop. If God exists, then any miracle is possible. In other words, in the words of Pastor Tim Keller, um, he, he wrote this, in order to be sure that miracles cannot occur, you would have to be sure beyond a doubt that God didn't exist. And that is an article of faith. See, he makes a great point there. Skepticism requires faith, just like believing in miracles requires faith. Skepticism requires faith in the absolute sufficiency of the laws of nature. That's what a skeptic's faith is in. But it's still faith. Their understanding of the laws of nature, that's the bounds of their belief. Now, there may be some of you who, who have believed this idea, you believe the idea, maybe you're struggling with this idea that, that the science and the Bible are incompatible. Maybe you believe that. The science and the Bible are incompatible. That in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door. Nothing could be further from the truth. Really, nothing could be further from the truth. Some of the greatest scientists of all time were devout Christians who believed in the miracles of the Bible. People like Kepler and Newton and Copernicus and Galileo and Pasteur. I mean, Albert Einstein once wrote, a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. That's Albert Einstein. Science and the Bible, they're answering very different questions. Science, science can answer the what and at times the how, but it cannot answer the why question. And those are the questions that we really care about, right? The why questions. Why are we here? Why does love exist? Why does evil exist? Those, those, those why questions are the questions that we're really wanting answers to. And science can't provide the answers for those things. So we need both science and the Bible to truly understand and live in this world. They're not incompatible. So if you have a skeptical bent toward the miracles of Jesus, I would just encourage you to approach them with an open mind as, as being possible. Opening up the possibility. Again, if God exists, why wouldn't a miracle be possible? So open up the possibility. And from there, once you open up that possibility, you can honestly examine the evidence for yourself. 
Read the evidence for yourself, the eyewitness accounts, and see if they seem plausible, the life in the life of Jesus. Okay, so skepticism is the first response. Rather than skepticism, there are a couple other responses I want to talk about. There's a second response that we can have regarding the miracles of Jesus, and that is the response of openness, openness. Now, I'm not talking here about blind faith, you know, a bunch of robots walking around in, you know, in lockstep, drinking the Kool-Aid and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about an openness to God working in these ways, an openness to the miracles of Jesus, an openness to the idea that these things actually happen just as they're recorded. And here's why this is so important. What if in the midst of our busy, stress-filled lives where all, thing, all sorts of things are going on in our families, our marriages, at work, all these things, in the midst of our lives, what if we took some time to meditate on the boat incident in Luke chapter 8 that I talked about a moment ago? Where, okay, we're thinking about this and we, we see Jesus speaking to the wind and the waves in a moment of absolute chaos. We see him speaking to the wind and the waves. Be quiet. And everything is still. And, and so as we're thinking about what if in our soul we realize this is our Savior. <laughs> this guy <laughs> is our Savior. A savior, our savior has the power to calm the wind and the waves in our lives. He has the power to calm the circumstances that fill our hearts with fear. So suddenly what's happening? Our faith is being stirred by the miracles of Jesus. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he's our savior. This is him. Okay, so that's a, that's a response of openness. What can happen when we open our hearts to these realities? This really is who Jesus is. Now that, that kind of openness leads to a third response. A response we see at the end of Luke chapter 24. Just after Jesus did another miraculous thing by ascending into heaven, right before the, eye, the, the disciples' eyes, okay? He descends into heaven, and this is what we read right at the end of the book. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Notice their response. Worship. Worship. They are in awe of their Savior. As they realize who he is, they can't help but worship him, giving to him the praise that he alone deserves. And, and this whole area of worship is so, it's so significant, so life-changing that, that I want to address this in more detail. So we're going to be starting a, a new teaching series in June, just focusing on this Theme on this life-changing subject, how we can grow as worshipers. It's a huge theme in Scripture. I'm very, very excited about it. Okay, so worship is a, is a, is a third response. Now, there's one more response to miracles that, that I want to highlight. Back to the incident in Luke chapter 7, where the widow's son is raised from the dead, right? Remember that? A great crowd had gathered. Look at the response of the people. Verse 16, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. So we see that they worshiped, right? Which we just mentioned, but there's something else as well. The people say, God has come to help his people. Notice, there, there is a sense of expectancy. 
right? There's a sense of expectancy. There is an expectation that God is at work, that he is still doing miracles. Do we have that same expectancy when it comes to the miraculous? The New Testament accounts of Jesus' ministry are not there to simply have us appreciate how Jesus worked in the past. They are there to also stir our faith in his miraculous activity today. God still works miracles. And what what we see in the New Testament is that once Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers began experiencing these things as well. I mean, Peter and John, in the early in the chapters of Acts, Acts, Peter and John heal a blind man. And then then we see Stephen and Philip, who were not even apostles. They were just ordinary guys. We see them involved in miraculous activity as people are being healed and all that. And, And then the apostle, Paul's ministry, of course, involved the miraculous. And then... In the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, we see evidence of this. For instance, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about people in the church who have the spiritual gift of miracles. That's actually one of the spiritual gifts listed there. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes these words to that church. He says, does God give you his Holy Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Now, he's, he's making an argument about the gospel here, but notice, notice the foundation of his argument. He, 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 it's assumed that miracles are happening in that church. It's assumed miracles are happening. Now, some, some Christians will say, well, the miracles people claim today are, you know, is not as dramatic and significant as the miracles of Jesus. I would agree, you know, that the level of the miraculous in Jesus' life was appropriately off the charts, okay? He was the son of God, okay? I'll give, give him that. But that doesn't mean that we can't see God working miracles today. Now, granted, our built-in skepticism as Americans, and let's just, we, we just have this. <laughs> we have it. It's built in. It's wired into us because of the culture we live in uh, and our worldview. Our built-in skepticism as Americans is often a barrier. But when, and, and some of you have done this, when you begin to read some of the accounts of what God is doing around the world right now, um, it, it, it's amazing. You will, you will find amazing stories. How, for instance, Muslims in North Africa and the Middle East are coming to Christ because of miracles that are happening. I've been reading this book called Miraculous Movements by Jerry Truesdale. He describes several of these things happening. Let me just tell, here's one. I just read this. It's written by the person it actually happened to. He was riding his motorcycle um, through a very um, anti, strong Muslim anti-Christian region in North Africa. His motorcycle broke down, and he didn't know how to fix it, right? He and his partner just didn't know what to do. They didn't have the equipment to fix it, didn't know what to do. So they're praying, what do we do? As he's trying to figure out what to do, he hears this wailing sound. He heard this wailing sound, and it's like this woman wailing. And, and, and so he walked toward the sound, and he found himself in a village where people were mourning the death of the chief's wife. So the chief of the village, his wife, had died. Her body, her dead body, was lying there while the villagers were just were weeping. This guy wanted to leave as quickly as possible, but he felt in his heart an urgency to go up and pray for this woman. And so he did for an hour and a half. <laughs> he prayed for her, pleading with God for her life. 
Suddenly her hand started to get warm. She started breathing and came back to life. Later, the chief said to this man, we haven't had a rule in this village that no one can talk about Christianity. That's been the rule here, but I'm changing that rule today. Tell us about Jesus. So he tells them about Jesus, and many come to faith in him. I was just talking um, with Erin Stacy uh, Ritzma, who is on our staff team, um, until she has her baby very soon. So, uh, but she told me about a mission trip that she was on a few years ago in Zambia. Her team came upon a man who had one eye that was just severely damaged. I mean, it was really non-existent, basically. All this scar tissue, and, and uh, there was virtually no eye there. Their team leader felt impressed to pray for this man's healing. And so he took mud, just like Jesus had done, right? Spit on the mud and got some mud together, or spit on the dirt, got some mud together, put it on the man's eyes and in that area, and then they began praying, just started praying for healing. After a few minutes, he wiped the mud off, and a fully functioning eye was there. Now, I know if you would read this in the book, you'd say, nah, I talked to Aaron. You can ask her. She was there. She saw this happen. And, and then I would ask, if, again, our skepticism, ah, oh, no, no, that couldn't happen. Why couldn't the God who created the universe create an eye? Why couldn't he? Now, in case we think these kinds of things a reserve for overseas. <laughs> I wanted to share part of an email that I received from someone in our church describing what happened to her husband during a worship service here just a few months ago. Right here. Um, happened just a few months ago. This was the email, part of the email I received. My husband broke his back while working four years ago. He had two compression fractures, a herniated disc, two bulging discs, a degenerative disc disease, and degenerative disc disease. Quite the diagnosis to receive as a 28-year-old sole provider with a baby under one years old. One year old. This accident started the most trying time in both of our lives as we entered into a world of doctors, surgeons, pain management specialists, chiropractors, physical therapy, and chronic pain. Quite a difficult life for an ex-football player. After three years of trying with no success, his pain was no better, and he was tired tired of pain, tired of doctor's appointments, tired of trying with no results. We relented to the fact that he was going to be in pain, and we moved on with our lives. Since the day he hurt himself, Kyle has not had two minutes where he hasn't been in some degree of pain. He unties his shoes and puts them by the door every night because in the morning he is in so much pain he can't bend to put his shoes on for four long years until yesterday morning. During church service, the song Waiting Here for You started. The very song I had heard the day before during my devotions when God stirred my heart to pray in faith for mountains to be moved. When that same song started in church, I took it as a message that the Spirit is there and moving. My husband took one step and instantly he couldn't feel his back at all. He said it was the weirdest feeling and described it as, it feels like what I'm guessing a normal person's back feels like, but I don't really remember. He spent yesterday, she had 
sent this a few days later. He spent yesterday installing baseboards at his mom's new house and woke up this morning slightly tight but with no pain. I've never experienced anything like this, and I just want the world to know. Our God is a God of miracles. So what this means, I'm not sure, but I do know one thing. I have been subconsciously selling God short. I have prayed for four years that God would help Kyle's back, knowing in my head that he could, but not expecting that he would. Our God already gave us his own son, so why wouldn't he want to give us more? Thank you. Thank you for your one unwavering faith. Thank you for praying boldly and with expectation. The Holy Spirit really was stirring in that song, and he has changed our lives. I just emailed her this week, and he's still pain-free, completely pain-free. Amen. <laughs> okay, so, so we have the miracles described in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. We have the testimonies of Christians around the world and here describing God's miraculous work. So here's the question. Are we open to the possibility of God working in these ways still? Are we open to and willing to allow our faith to be stirred, believing that God is still in the business of doing miracles? Are we open to that? Well, as we prepare to pray, I want to ask our campus pastors to come up and lead your congregations in prayer. All right, let's, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for stirring our faith through your word and through testimony that you are a God of miracles that when you were here on earth, you did miracles. You exerted control over the natural realm and you brought healing to people's bodies. You brought life out of death. And we praise you for that. And we praise you that you are not done doing miracles. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are Lord and King. And we praise you for that. We worship you for that. And we pray that you would stir in our hearts an expectation. To pray with expectancy that you would move, that you would heal, that you would would touch people's lives in significant ways. So Holy Spirit, would you come and just stir our faith, stir our faith here. What we want to do, the worship team's going to start um, singing a song, and, and um, I want us all, to, why don't we stand as, as we um, enter into a time of worship and prayer. As a part of this song, I'm going to come back up here and maybe lead us in a little prayer time. But I want, I want our hearts just to be open as this song is sung, as we sing this song, just to be open to the Holy Spirit stirring our faith. Maybe you need a miracle in your life. And, and after, at the end of the song, we want, to, we want to pray for that. And so let's just let the song, let the words of the song stir our faith as we are waiting for the Lord. We're waiting for his, for his presence. So Holy Spirit, come. Come. We pray. We wait on you, Lord.